All right, today I'm in London with David Nicholson. Thanks very much, sir, for giving some, some of your time up, David, to talk to us. No um, I've been really looking forward to this because I'm totally clueless as well. So basically, you're a very busy chap. Crypto casino, European bookmaker, launching stuff in Africa. I mean, what we're going to talk about all that in a bit, but what would you describe your profession as? I would describe myself as a gambling industry entrepreneur, as uh, dreary as that sounds. Okay, so but first and foremost, when we talked, when we, we sort of corresponded before we did this, you described yourself as a lifetime gambler. So when did that lifetime in gambling begin and where did it all start? So I've been gambling pretty much my entire adult or mid-adult life. Um, I started playing poker with my friends at school, like 15, 16. Um, really got into it. Um, my parents were both very anti-gambling, but my grandma was a, like a big gambler. So I think it like sort of skipped, skipped down a generation. Uh, but when I was about 17, I met uh, two guys, um, Jamie Sykes and Ash Mason, who were still two of my best friends to this day. And we were playing in a card room behind a snooker club in Harrogate. And that's my that was my first taste of like, what I would call like gritty, kind of like spit and sawdust uh, gambling. You know, every Friday and Sunday, uh, like poker tournament, little cash games on the side, sit and goes, people of all different kinds of uh, age and background. So I got, that's when I really got into, into gambling there through poker. And you were winning money? Not really, no. I mean, I was not losing money, which is, is, is kind of a big achievement, I think. Well, and as good as you could do back then. And you say your grandma was a big gambler. In what way? Horses. Loved the horses. Um, it's my, both my parents didn't like it, don't like it at all, and they were massively against me gambling. But um, my grandma, who's obviously died, unfortunately, way before uh, I became a professional gambler, I think she would have been loving it, watching what I went on to do. So when you, you became a professional gambler, was it a professional poker player? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I left school. When I left school, I, I started working for a guy whose business was buying and selling like distressed restaurants. Um, straight out of school, 18, doing this. And he himself was actually a massive gambler as well, horses, surrounded by like gambling people, always went to the races, uh, would be late for meetings because he was like sweating the 110 at Plumpton on his phone. Like, um, and then I, I kept playing poker with Ash and Jamie mostly, who were going doing it professionally. And I, I stayed, stayed involved with it. And then after about two years of working, the business got sold. I had a small payout and I was kind of like, I'll just hang out with Jamie and Ash basically. And, you know, they go off to Walsall to play the GUKPT or they go to Nottingham to play the DTD 300 and it was kind of a good laugh. And then from that moment, five years later, I'm still, I'm still playing poker and I'd never do anything else. And it sort of rolls off the tongue that you're a professional poker player. Well, lots of people play poker, it's very popular, but not many of them are good enough to become professionals. So, I mean, were you like um, somebody that reads loads of books? Did you learn online? Did your friends teach you? Or was it natural aptitude? Well, it, it's definitely important to distinguish between being a professional poker player now and trying to be a professional poker player 
15 years ago when, when I started. I mean, it's a completely different now. Um, I, I don't want to say it was easy, but it wasn't hard to win 15, 12 years ago. Um, I would mostly, I never read any books or did any training or study or anything, but I would always talk to my friends who were all better players than me. Um, you know, what would you have done with this hand here? What would you have done with that hand there? And the, the quality of the competition just wasn't really that high. So, you know, I never, I never like scaled poker into anything that made me a load of money, but I, I always got by. Like all, all I needed to do was just to win enough money for another month of jollying about drinking and traveling with my friends. And that was me pretty happy really, so. Yeah, but that jollying about and drinking was in Las Vegas, wasn't it? We did a lot of time in Vegas, yeah. Did eight trips, ranging between six and 12 weeks from maybe 2011 to 2013. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. And what goes on in Vegas, stay in Vegas? Or can you tell us a few stories? Um, yeah, I mean, there's been some, some fairly well-known uh, incidents over the years. Probably the, the most uh, well-known uh, incident was when um, my friend Matt Perrins, he won a bracelet. I think this is 2013. I think it's definitely towards the end of my Vegas uh, uh, bulldozing. He, he won a, I think it was a $5,000 No Limit uh, event. And he, he was heads up against a guy called uh, Arthur Pro recreational player who had uh, he had a home game I can't remember where he was from they had a home game maybe there's eight of them they all put in enough money to make up the 5,000 and whoever won it went to Vegas to play this event and the rest of them they all got a equal share of 50% and he got he got 50% he came second I can't remember the amounts maybe 400,000 he won and, <coughs> and, and Matt won 700 or 750 um, and we all went out afterwards um, together, including Arthur Pro and a load of his friends who've obviously made all this money, which they weren't expecting. And then there's a kind of like lengthy blank. And then the next thing I remember, we're on the top of the Mirage Fountains, where we've been persuaded to, to jump in by uh, any sort of mischief, m mischievous members of the group. Me, me and Matt and I think another couple of people, uh, we get out of the Mirage Fountains and uh, police sirens and I'm thinking, you know, well, we're, we're, we're banged to rights, really, aren't we? Like, they know that someone's been in the fountains. We're stood here dripping wet. You know, there'll probably be a $70 fine or whatever, and we'd be on our way. But then Pez decides that uh, we should run. So he just goes, run, all of a sudden. And I'm thinking, well, run feels like a terrible idea, but everybody else is running, so, you know, what, why the hell not? We ended up getting tackled to the ground. Um, I, got, I got watched uh, Pez get pepper sprayed by a, a very large policewoman uh, brought but brought back down um yeah fined i think three hundred dollars for i think the actual fine was for play fight play fighting in a public water feature um yeah i mean there was just loads of nonsense shenanigans like that where we just got into all sorts of silly trouble mostly through drinking too much or um over excitement so is it, is it vulgar to talk about money i mean did you come home with more money than you went with after your ferrari out there. Well, I did eight trips to Vegas and uh, I did two in the spring, which what they call March Madness. It's uh, where they all bet on the basketball. So it's very, very busy. I did three in the summer for the World Series where everybody, all my friends, there must have been a hundred people I knew would go out, typically for the whole summer as well. 
And then we did three in the autumn, somewhere between uh, Halloween and the Five Diamond tournament, which was the start of December. And I won, I won all five non-summer trips, or maybe one trip was a small, uh, small loss where I played a really big game and lost. And then I lost significantly in every summer. I think minus 40% bankroll was maybe my best ever summer performance in Vegas because I just wasn't ready for how, you know, everybody there, temptation around every corner, you know, Vegas will, will drag it out of you. If, if you've got any sort of demon at all, Vegas will, will get it out of you one way or another. So when I went by myself, I did well, you know, calm, peaceful. When I went with my friends, I just had absolutely no chance. And do we assume that apart from what you've already said about the, um, the, 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 the restaurant game, have you not had a proper job? Have you just gone straight headlong into this gambling? Yeah, I had the job at the start. Um, I very briefly did some freelance uh, waitering um, mid-20s mid, mid when things went a little awry. Uh, but yeah, apart from that, I've been, been working for myself the whole time. Okay, so, did, so did you actually came back with some money? To, to bankroll you after these, or did you just have a lot of fun and spend it? Uh, I won money at poker overall, accumulatively, from my trips to Vegas, uh, but brought home really very little of it, and I probably span it off wherever I came back with pretty quickly as well. But okay, you said you retired from professional poker, so why did you make that decision? Well, it was about uh, mid-twenties. Uh, I'd noticed that there was a shift coming in the way that poker was, um, I'd always done quite well on the internet and um, I felt like quite well respected. You know, people didn't typically sort of seek me out to play against me. Um, you know, I could, I could sit on a table by myself, um, you know, not always, but sometimes. So I felt like there was a fair amount of respect for me for the competition and I knew some players were better and some players were worse and I felt like I had a good handle on, on why that was. And then I kind of remember the day, like one day I woke up and was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm finished. Like they're all better than me now. Like I have to move, I have to move down or, you know, really study. Solvers were just starting to come out. Like people were just starting to think about solving poker from like game theory and stuff. And so can you elaborate on what that is for people that like me that don't know? Well, I mean, I know precious little as well, but game theory started to really come into poker where very clever people were starting to solve various aspects of the game mathematically. And, you know, I have enormous respect for, for the solver people, for the people that have um, designed this software, that have learnt this stuff. But I, I knew in, instinctively, like, this wasn't going to be for me. Like, I, I'm not going to be the guy that, that studies all these different poker spots or hands or learns how to use all these different bits of software. You know, for me, it was always more like, it was, there was a lot of fun to it, and it, the minute it became like a maths exam, I was out, basically. So I went from doing okay at poker to quit very quickly, actually. So, so would you be playing against bots, basically, or, or sort of semi-bots? Is that how it was working? Well, there was actually, part, in my last, last few months, actually, there was a big like bot scandal on the site that I played on where they some Russian crew put in a load of uh, bots that, that won a load of money, and I think I lost quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, mostly just this. I mean, that's obviously bad is, is the bots. But for the most part, I think the quality of competition just got a lot better, a lot quicker. And I met a lot of these guys, you know, in the coming years when I was more recreationally involved in poker. And a lot of them were like 
they were just sort of 19 year olds from like Latvia who were dedicating themselves to it, like really, really dedicated to becoming great players. And, you know, you have to know when you beat sometimes and, and I just had no chance against those guys. So probably the part of my poker career I'm most proud of is that I, I smelt when the game was up way quicker than I thought I would. All right, so we're going to briefly talk about a, a, the restaurateur business yeah. that you went headlong into after you gave up poker, is that right? Yeah, quit poker to become a restaurateur. It was, uh, well, I mean, it was, it was, depends how you, you define it. Uh, financially, it was a t total catastrophe. I mean, I lost all my money, pretty much. Um, I made lots of silly, silly mistakes. But I, I learned a lot of uh, good lessons about life and business and, and things, things that I wasn't uh, sort of planning to learn at that stage. How old were you then? 20, just turned 25. Um, so we, we opened, a, I bought a fish and chip takeaway and then put a restaurant alongside it. Um, you know, tried to sort of fancy it up, make it all like tapas and gins and all this kind of stuff. It was a real, it was a real disaster. Actually, it went, it went terribly, but, you know, it's character building. I also met my, my future wife um, from being involved in the restaurants again, so that was obviously, could never, could never be a, a disaster because of that. All right, David, so the restaurant business wasn't for you, but you found yourself a lovely wife, so it was all... Uh... Yeah. So it all went okay, really, in the end. No complaints. Um, now, you told me you were... Now, this one's going to... People have got to excuse my ignorance if they know, but you told me that you were back to gambling after 12 months doing edge play in casinos. Now, I have no idea what edge play is. Can you enlighten us, please? Yeah, so uh, after the restaurant incident, I had a friend in um, East Europe. I won't say locations just in case I ever need to go back to these places. But... Um, he had a little, um, a little coup going on some casinos where he'd found a sort of advantage, like plus EV system to play a certain table game. And yeah, I you know said to him, yeah, like, you know, I'm a little bit, a little bit lost for what to do. Dusted all my money at trying to be a restauranter. Don't massively fancy playing poker again, but there's not really anything else I'm good at. Um, he said, well, we'll come over here and, ha and have, a, have a go at this. And we spent about eight months there together Maybe slightly less. Uh, it was a sunny place, which was nice. And we, yeah, we, we played this casino game and it is so much fun playing casino with, with an advantage. Um, it's not a big edge and it's quite volatile. So, you know, you could, what, what is it like the best use of your time? Probably not. But for that part where I just needed to spin up some money and didn't really know what to do, it was really, really good fun. Uh, it was a kind of Caribbean stud kind of variant game that had a kind of weak, weak edge on some of the rules. So, yeah, we just played that non-stop basically for six months and a little bit of poker and some live live poker games. Um, it was amazing, actually. One of the best times. Is that, I mean, that sounds like a, a gambling dream come true, finding a casino game that you can beat. So are they lulled into a false sense of security and thinking, well, you can't win in the long run, you keep, keep spinning away, lads, but really you've got the edge they don't know about. Is that how, it's, how you lasted so long? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, we, got, we, got, we did get banned from everywhere eventually, um, which, you know, is fine. But yeah, it was, it was basically that. Like, 
they think you're a customer. You know, we're also the added benefits. You're playing in the casino all day, every day. You get, you know, free drinks, free dinners, uh, free rooms. You know, we wanted like a beach cabana. They would give it to us for free. So, yeah, didn't make a fortune, but had a, a lot of fun and met met some good contacts actually that were useful later on in life. So it was a, a really good year for me actually. So where does that end? I mean, you get a couple of heavies coming to sort of carry you out when, when they've had enough of you. Is that how it works in those casinos? No, I mean, there was a few semi-hairy moments. Um, what, one time my fiancé was with us and she, she was quite cold and they'd given her one of these like shawls, um, you know, that they would give to the ladies if, if it was cold, the aircon's on. And then we got, we got like aggressively kicked out that evening. Um, this has happened, not like, you know, thrown through the door, but like, you've got to leave right now. And I remember the bouncer was just like determined to get the shawl back from Laura and he's like yanking it off when she's getting spun around. <laughs> like, we'll give you the shawl, it's okay. But yeah, for the most part, you know, they just said, you can't play anymore. And we, if they don't want to let us play, then that's fine. Respect that, we go somewhere else. So then you did, you, um, tell us about the poker site in Turkey. Yes, yeah, so we was in. Um, we opened a poker site in Turkey. Uh, well, Turkish Cyprus, obviously. Um, and yeah, we got the opportunity to open a open a skin there. Me and my friend, same friend that we've been doing the casino stuff with. Uh, I'd never done anything before, like operating or operational style. Uh, my only business experience of any sort was my restaurant. So obviously, you know, it's not a great starting point. But we, we, we did well with it and we, it was a, a shared network like, like, like iPoker and Betfair were in the old days. Uh, it was on a small, um, small skin. There was 10 sites on the network and we, we got to number two pretty quickly actually in terms of weekly uh, revenue that was being generated. And then one of the other sites offered to buy us out and we, we sold it and uh, went on. But yeah, I had it for about a year maybe. And it was good. It was really good fun. I learned lots, made some good, good connections. Um, my first view into what like operating a gambling business looked like. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a big, big moment for me really to get involved in that. Okay. So basically you're, um, you're sort of facilitating gamblers to play poker on your site there, but then you and your good mate who we shan't name became agents for big syndicates. So you're really facilitating, is that how it works? I mean, what do agents for big syndicates do? So through, obviously I've been working in uh, Turkey, Turkish Cyprus, sorry, and uh, other parts of, of Europe with my, with the poker site, meeting different people. Opportunities where, you know, big betting accounts or places where you could bet decent sums on football, primarily, started to sort of stumble across them. I knew my, my friend was involved in this kind of stuff, so I said to him, you know, is there any, can we make money from it, basically? And from there, it kind of snowballed to a few years of working, finding betting accounts for sort of big gambling groups to, to place bets on. And yeah, it was it, pretty straightforward, really. You know, here's a site you can bet 50 grand on the Premier League, you can bet 20 grand on the Championship, you can bet Holland goals this amount and then they would just play and if, if they won we'd, we'd, we'd get a share of the winnings so it was it was nice it was good business and, and I, I'd never seen like pro punting like this before and um, so I, I got to really look behind the curtain at how it worked and 
Yeah. You, you're looking behind the curtain, it sounds a bit shadowy. I mean, you're able to tell us at all what sort of people these people are that form these syndicates? Well, I mean, people could speculate. I mean, there's lots of very famous uh, betting syndicates. I've worked in some way with quite a few of them over the years. Um, the most famous guys in you know, betting football, um, they can bet, they've been able to bet and win in ways that I didn't think were possible, some of these guys. So it's, you know, okay. very impressive. So then you set up your own syndicate? Yes, yeah, so me and, me and uh, two, two friends of mine, we, when we kind of, it was getting harder and harder to, to facilitate bets for the people. It was getting a little bit more complicated. Uh, movement of money became difficult. You know, people became less and less reliable. It just became less financially viable for us to, to continue to broker other people's bets with, you know, credit risks and the costs of money movement. So we thought, you know, if we're either going to give that game up completely or, you know, we still do have the connections, can we make our own bets? And, you know, rather than having to find someone else to, to bet and provide the winning bets, basically, could, could we do it? So we, we went first, we tried it with darts. It's obviously an easy, not, not an easy sport, but sort of an easier one. And then we, we dabbled in cricket and then eventually settled on football, which is, which is what we do now. Okay, so you make that sound quite easy because obviously, you know, we all know the sort of some of the names involved with football syndicates are absolute mathematical geniuses and, you know, big sort of setups. I mean, how, where did the brains come from to, to try and emulate them? Well, we, we had a tech guy, sort of a tech team, mostly one guy, a data scientist who was doing all the sort of modeling and tech work because, um, you know, it's not possible these days. You can't just be a, a man with the racing post and, you know, I'll, you know, I've heard Bruno might, might not start for United, so we'll take a bit of United minus 0.75 and watch it drift or, um, you know, you, you have, there's a lot of technical work that goes into it, which obviously we knew nothing about. Um, but, but John, my partner there, he was really like the genius behind it all. I mean, he, he's incredibly talented, like better himself. Um, and and you know, he's probably the best guy I've ever seen in terms of like naturally understanding betting markets and reading betting markets. So the idea was kind of like, can we, can we find a tech team to support him rather than like, we're all going to start a syndicate together. Um, and yeah, it was difficult because you don't know anything about tech data science or modeling you have to go out and try and try and build this thing and they all cost a fortune um, buying data paying for different data feeds and all this kind of stuff so it's it's not something you can just willy-nilly start um, you know it does take a bit of investment and a lot of time okay now you you said you started off with darts i mean I, i'm assuming that to get these bets on you don't really get them on in the uk i mean is 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 that right is is that would that be right or not so for darts, we actually played quite a lot into, we used to just bet onto Betfair as liquidity was, was, was actually pretty decent. Um, for football and cricket, yeah, you, you know, the, the, the days of getting a Bet365 account where you can bet 20 grand a game is, is not there anymore. The, the, you know, source of funds, responsible gaming, it's just a completely dead, dead world, I think. Uh, so all our bets have always been international. You know, we've, we've bet in many different countries, many different continents. Um, obviously, everyone knows India is the place to bet cricket. 
China was, used to be what, where everyone would bet their football. It's a little bit different these days. But yeah, outside the UK for, for big size bets, for sure. Okay, now you concentrate on high tier football. Now, it seems unlikely, as a general consensus, is that all the sharp money in that market makes the market right and it's hard to get any edge. But are you that sharp money? Well, I mean, I hope so. But fo football is very, very difficult. Like it's particularly big league football. Uh, the appeal to it is obviously is that it's very liquid. So, you know, if you can win betting on the Bundesliga, for example, then, you know, you can get a decent sized bet on. But, you know, you have to... I mean, when we took, when we took football on I and mean, we knew it'd be difficult, I think we probably slightly underestimated just quite how difficult it would be. Um, but I think there's just about enough inefficiency in the market if you're good at, if you're good at um, sort of trading, winning, in, you know, winning material. I think there's just enough inefficiency to, to eke out a little win rate. But you obviously have to be cognizant and very respectful of the fact that if you play in high liquidity markets like the Premier League or La Liga or top, top division football, then you are in the same ring as like the very best gamblers in the world um, and you will cross swords with them at some point so it's a very tough it's a very tough school um, but i think there's you know there's enough there i think to to make money but it's not it's not easy and it's not cheap either to to build the infrastructure to to do it um, you know if we were to start again today i don't think i would i would go after football but we're here now so we're we're in and the, these, these foreign markets that you bet into, are they sort of exchange-type models or are they book, traditionally bookmaker-type things? Depends. Anywhere, really. I mean, just like anything, you need the prices to be okay and to get your money out if you win. So if those two things line up, then we could bet pretty much anywhere. I mean, we'd be you know, we'd bet in the North Pole if, if we could get the money out and the prices were right. And is there quite a network so that you can find out if you're going to get knocked or not before you actually get knocked, would you sort of know fairly confidently that the people you're betting with are going to pay you? Yeah, well, it's, it, that is all just risk appetite. You know, if, if, we, if we were to go back six or seven years, my risk appetite for, for credit risks was, was aggressive. You know, I would think of it like, oh, you know, what's the balance? 100K. What do I think the chances of not getting paid are? 1.5%. That's 1,500 of edge. Can we, you know, is, does the project justify it? Nowadays, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much just very, very tight on any kind of risk. So, you know, we work with people we've worked with for years, uh, people who we know, people who have great reputations, people who have business interests that are entwined with us in other ways or who have business connections that we're very close with. Uh, so, yeah, we, we have very little bad, bad debt over the, course of a, over the course of a year's betting. But... We cost ourselves opportunity by never taking, you know, a little bit more risk in order to, to get more liquidity. And I think just for the sake of sanity, that's how it's going to stay for, for, for the foreseeable future. Okay, and then um, the figures you're talking about there, you know, the label, I think, blimey, that's a lot of money. Are those the sort of levels that you're comfortable playing at, or is it bigger than that? Well, when it comes to football, you know, you have to, you know, when you look at the operation we've built, and we're small compared to anyone else, but... You, know, you have to be playing in decent size on football because the margins just aren't that big. So you hear like, yes, you know, uh, 80,000, 100,000, 120,000 a bet and you think it's, it's a lot and it is a lot. But you know, when you're looking at two, maybe two and a half percent margin, you know, that's 
that's you know maybe eighteen hundred pounds of or dollars of edge off a, off an eighty grand or a hundred grand bet. So when you think you've got data data staff, data purchases, tech staff, traders, offices to pay for, like you know you you have to bet in that size, otherwise it just doesn't make any sense. Your costs will will, will sink you. David, the fascinating stuff in the first two parts there. So I'm, you're talking in the current. So you're still doing the football, the high rolling football syndicates, but you've got other current projects. You want to tell us a bit about them? Yeah. So in the last um, couple of years, uh, I've switched my attention a little bit to like more operating um, projects within gambling. Um, so you know we've. We launched a couple of cryptocurrency casinos, which um, is, 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 is an industry that I'm very interested in. Um, and then we've, we've also been looking to build out uh, software, uh, you know, build our own casino and sports betting software with a partner of mine uh, who's extremely talented developer. And then I, I've been very interested uh, for a long time in Africa and the African gaming markets. Uh, you know, one thing that's always appealed to me about Africa is um, the pace at which it's growing, you know, not just in gambling, but economically, you know, it, it, people think, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of poor countries in Africa and that's undeniably true, but the pace of economic growth that, that a lot of these, in, in, uh, economies are seeing is is pretty pretty rapid, you know, way faster than than you know industrial revolutions that went on in the past in, in European countries. So I, I've had my eyes on it for a long time. Um, I think the gambling markets there are really interesting because typically I've I've seen that the gambling industry, particularly in Europe, has been very hard to to innovate. You know, I've seen lots of good ideas of gambling products and projects. Know, um, which I thought, well, that's a great idea, or you know, that's something brand new or very clever, but has never really worked. And I, and I think the reason for that is mostly that whatever happens with gambling in Europe, people just mostly want to have a six-fold acre on the football on a Saturday and watch Jeff Stelling, or they want to have 80 quid at nine to two on the next in Wolverhampton. Like that's just how people have been gambling for like 2,000 years, and I don't think people have really any interest in changing. I think I'd say maybe Betfair and DraftKings are the only two sort of like innovative betting products that have come along in the past however many years and, and have actually made any sort of meaningful impact. Um, I mean, there's been lots of innovation in inside the current products like, you know, bet builders and cash outs and I guess spread betting was a good one. But, but I think Africa being, uh, so immature markets, there could actually be a, an opportunity for some really good innovation, or at the very least, clever takes on existing gambling products over there. So I've been 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 very interested, and I've started some projects in East Africa to to hopefully uh, try and introduce some slightly different gambling products over there, uh, lower value products, um, like with a little bit more emphasis on social social gaming and social gambling um, and that's that's a project that i'm really quite passionate about very excited about 
wouldn't it be just as easy to encourage them all to bet like people bet over here? Because they can't win, can they? Betting like that. So you've got a guaranteed formula to win money off of your customers if they do if they do six match hackers and things like that. Yeah, and I mean you're exactly right. From from being over there and spending some time there, I've seen everybody bets in 10, 11, 12 fold accumulators, you know, 80 cents to try win 30 grand. Um, and yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to, to, do, to do that as well. But I'm particularly excited about, uh, about trying some slightly different things over there and seeing if we can build some really cool, cool things. And this is brand new to me. I've never done anything like this before. So this is a, a fun, interesting thing. Do you go over? Do you have to go over? Have you been, or do you just do it all remotely? I've spent. I've spent some time over there. I've been in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, um, learnt, just trying to learn a little bit more about the cultures over there, the different markets, the type of people, um, the bureaucratic landscape is something that is 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 very interesting uh, to, to 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 get involved in. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating, really. It, it, I'm very lucky that I've been able to do that, and that's something I'm quite quite happy to be involved in. There's some of that, something else you mentioned earlier, which is quite often, you know, from, from a layman's point of view, um, some people dismiss it, other people really go for it. Crypto. Yeah. Now give us a little, in a nutshell, why, I mean, you know, do you think it's a, a, it is something that's going to be the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm tremendously bullish on crypto and have been for, for ages. Um, I mean, my introduction to, to Bitcoin was completely by accident. Um, I think it was maybe 2017, and I was, uh, we had a, I can't, generally can't remember who we were working with or what exactly the project was, but we had a project somewhere in a difficult uh, location where we'd won some money and we're having real trouble to bring the money back. And we'd managed to cobble most of the, most of the funds back. And I think Left Outstanding was about $30,000 which was basically what me and my partner were, were owed from the project. So everyone else had been paid and we were just waiting to get our money. And after a month of, um, oh, can you send it here? No, we could send it there. Well, I can't take it there, all this back and forth. The guy said to me, I sent you some Bitcoin. And I'm like, well, the hell's Bitcoin? I don't really know. I'd sort of heard of it. it, sounded a bit dodgy. But he said, it's pretty easy. Start a Coinbase account and I'll just send you it. Then at least you've got it. And I thought, well, I mean, if experience has taught me anything, when people are trying to pay you, don't, don't be saying no. So I opened a Coinbase account, got sent this Bitcoin. I was on holiday actually in Portugal at the time. And I said to my friend, oh, we've been paid. Uh, we got paid that money, we got Bitcoin. And he's like, oh, okay. How do we turn that into real money? I'm like, well, I don't have a clue, but at least we have it. So I'm on holiday with my missus. I'll deal with it when I get back. And then two days later, I was just on the balcony looking out over the golf course and randomly had this compulsion to check the Bitcoin thing on the, on the Coinbase app. I logged in and we'd been sent, I think we'd been sent 48 Bitcoin for somewhere around 30 grand. And all of a sudden it was like, it was worth like 50,000. 50, 50, I'm like, ooh, 40% in two days. So now my interest is properly peaked in this thing. Um, and I started to, to look into it. But that really got my, got my juices flowing from, from two angles. One, it solved the actual problem that we had with our business, which was we had legitimate trouble to take money out of difficult countries. And then secondly, obviously, I'd, we had gone up 40% in 48 hours. So from a speculative asset point of view, I was, I was interested.
Now, you, you, that leads me nicely on to, you know, this is all stuff we've talked about before, you specialise in payments. So I'm assuming that means getting paid from your winnings or whatever. So can you explain a bit about what that entails? Yeah, so, I mean, I've built a reputation of being a semi-specialist when it comes to, to payments. I mean, I have no history in finance or, or banking or anything like this at all. But um, again, from working with, with big betting groups, the big issue was always, yay, great, you found an opportunity to, to bet the Premier League for, for big stakes in Singapore or Israel or South Africa or wherever. But they would say, how do we get paid when we win? And I would think, well, that's a damn sensible question. I have no idea. So it wasn't only to find the opportunities, it was also to find out, okay, let's say we win, how would we, would we get paid? And through luck, networking, I don't know what, what, what it was, I was able to build like a pretty decent network of people that could help facilitate moving this kind of gambling money around. And then people started to say, oh, well, you did a great job with that. Actually, we've got this thing in some other country do you reckon you could maybe try and find out how we'd get that money home and then we'd be able to do it? And slowly, you know, I was, would build up a, a good network and it gave me access to opportunities that, you know, maybe I didn't wholly deserve because I could bring these kind of connections to the table. But, but cryptocurrency was the huge win for me in this. And I started using it to move gambling money in 2017. And at this point, basically none of the big boys would touch it. Um, so I started to handle all, you know, I said like, well, I'll do it all for you. You tell me where, where it is, tell me where it wants to go and I'll, and I'll handle it with the crypto. And I, you know, I handled from 2017 over the next 18 months, maybe solid nine figures of, of crypto transactions for yeah, but, I mean, various people. You said you're still on the balcony and it gone up 40%. So one assumes that it can, it could have dropped 40% and you've got nine figures. You've oh got, yeah, you've got, I mean, you know, it quite, must be a bit hairy. You're making it sound like it's just finding it on the floor. Well, I, I, I mean, I never. This was only from like a transactional point of view, not a, not a like speculative point of view. I mean, I would always, you know, if, if we were handling, you know, seven figure clips of crypto moving around, I would always be very keen to make sure that I wasn't exposed. I mean, I, I learned the lesson actually once. Um, you know, we, we, we held quite a lot of Bitcoin. Me and a, a partner of mine. Uh, for about 36 hours on behalf of a betting group. And I think we lost about 300 grand in that 36 hours personally. And you know, that was entirely on us to, to cover that. So that was a, a lesson that was um, learned. Don't leave yourself exposed to the thing. I mean, it's one thing to buy it because you think it's gonna go up and then you, you get the opportunity to sell it when you, whenever you want. But when you, when you know that you're gonna receive it at 9 a.m. on a Monday and you have to sell it at five o'clock on a Tuesday, you, know, you are flipping, you are flipping coins for, for money that you shouldn't be flipping coins for. So. And has it ever spun around that you've copped 300 grand or similar? Yeah. So we've had, we did have a semi win in the back. I think people always say it, it evens out. I think it genuinely did. I think I'm probably almost exactly level lifetime for the, the ups and downs. Now, um, tell us about Luxon paying coin rivet. So Luxon, uh, is, a uh, Betting group, uh, banking group, sorry, in the UK, um, who's the founders I've known for, for a long time. Uh, they specialize in what's called high risk um, 
payments. Um, the higher risk industries are gambling, being a classic example. Well, gambling and cryptocurrency considered two of the highest risk industries. Um, because of my background working with all big gambling companies and um, processing payments on their behalf, um, I, I started to work with Luxon very closely. I invested in the business when, when, it, when it formed. Um, it, it's, a, it's really focused around the poker industry and the gambling industry a little bit more, but mostly focused on poker. And it, it really is unfairly difficult to uh, move gambling funds around the world. Um, most big banks will consider it just too high risk to deal with. And this isn't you know, to say that there's anything wrong with the, the transactions. The way that a big bank like Barclays or HSBC would look at that is, yeah, I'm sure this guy is a great guy. Um, he says he's a professional poker player. He very well might be, but like, why the hell should we take the risk? Like, what, what benefit to us? So you become sort of ostracized as, as a gambler. Um, your money's sort of treated like it's kind of dirty or akin to like drug dealers or terrorists. And there's just, there just isn't any need for it. And what Luxon has done fantastically is it's managed to build really good banking relationships with the big banks, where it's been able to explain to those banks, these are real people with compliant money, and all they want to do is just send, send and receive their money. And it's been a service that's um, gone down very, very well with the gambling, um, with the gambling world. And Luxon's doing great and growing, and I'm very passionate about, about that business. Uh, David, you said about um, you've, networking seems to be quite a big, you know, quite an essential thing in your business sort of as, as you've grown. Um, you must have had some good sort of mentors along the way, people that shared their knowledge with you. Can you mention what they taught you, or even if you don't want to mention their names or mention their names if you want to? Sure. Well, I've been super lucky like uh, incredibly lucky throughout my life. I've, I've been surrounded by really great people that have been so generous to me with their time, with opportunities that they've given me, uh, with all that like, advice, uh, help with anything. So, I mean, that I have to say is, is a massive part for why I've been able to be reasonably successful. Uh, the first sort of mentor figure I had, um, I was very close to a guy called George Weinberg in Leeds, um, who was sort of like the godfather of uh, Northern Gambling. Uh, he he kind of took me under his wing a little bit early days when I was playing the casinos in Leeds. Um, he gave me some, uh, some good advice on what not to do in Vegas on my first trip. And I think I'd broken every single piece of advice within uh, 46 hours, um, which, which obviously he would have expected. Um, Come on then, you've got to tell us a couple of those snippets. Well, he said, uh, don't put your card behind the bar when you go out with your friends, number one. He warned me about something which he referred to as the brass nail, which is where you get spiked in clubs and then go, you go back with a girl and she steals things from you. Um, and then general like ways to, you know, how to like when taxi drivers say, oh, I'll take you to a massage parlor. You say, no, I'm going home, all, all these kind of things. Um, and yeah, I think my very first night in Vegas, I hadn't even gone to bed and I ended up in a strip club with uh, JP Kelly, Dave Shallow and Flushy and card behind the bar, some stupid bill rung up. Um, 
night two, barely been to bed, ended up spiked in a Mirage club and uh, wallet stolen. Was, I mean, I was a sitting duck, basically. Um, <laughs> sitting duck for, for that. Um, but as I, as I started to, to move through uh, like sort of life, um, a guy called Julian Gardner, who um, very well known in Manchester, maybe less, less well known in London, he really showed me about like professional angles to, to being a poker player. Um, he kind of opened my eyes a lot to like the more sort of nitty gritty of winning money at, uh, at gambling. Uh, he's still a, still a good friend of mine, very talented, talented guy. Um, yeah, Rob, Rob Young, who owns DTD, has been extremely kind to me over the years and, and given me lots of chat opportunities and, and, and help and introductions. Um, Bernard, Bernard Marantelli, who I think you've done a, yep. a thing with, he's always extremely, extremely uh, generous to me with advice and time, which is, which is massively, you know, massively useful. These are huge hitters, hitters really. You know, I, I'd be lucky to, lucky to be in their phone books um, and I'm getting you know, good counsel from them. Uh, but I'd say the person who's been the biggest influence on me was a friend of mine called Andy Mosley, who um, is, you know, would not I would not be here in any way whatsoever without without his help. Um, he taught me so much about um, like gambling, sports betting. Has introduced me to so many great people. He's helped me with money, with opportunities, with uh, advice. Um, like a very very very. Uh, kind, generous guy. He's one of my best mates. Um, so yeah, I would I would say that there isn't really a, a pound in my bank account or brick in the wall of my house that he couldn't claim to have to have to have had a big part in in me acquiring. I'd say so. Very very lucky to have to have had had him on board. And where did your entrepreneurial spirit come from? Entrepreneurial spirit came came from my dad, who was had his own gardening business for many years. Um, he was always very much like, he's not a gambler, but he's a big like, risk taker in business. So he was always very much like, you know, you don't have to be like everybody else. You can run your own business, make your own destiny, take your own path. Um, he, he went, his business went bankrupt when I was sort of 12, 11, I think. Um, he, st he started again, rebuilt it all. Um, very, very impressive. Um, that time in my life that time for him must have been super stressful you know like 11 year old 12 year old kid just starting secondary school business gone bankrupt had to remortgage the house and I, I look back at that time and never had a never knew anything that was going on so how to behave as a businessman and how to you know be entrepreneurial definitely came from him so he's a big influence to me now you've obviously flown you know, we're in a lovely house here, you've got successful businesses. Do you ever sort of worry that one failure might bring you crashing down to earth? No, I don't, I don't worry that at all, actually. Um, I'm perfectly ready to fail. Um, I'm, not, I'm not worried. Ben, ben Keith has a good saying. He says, um, uh, try everything, uh, but go, don't go skin doing any of it. So you're not worried that, and do you worry then that, I mean, you are di diversifying to a certain extent. Do you worry that you might spread yourself a bit too thinly. Yeah, I worry about that constantly. Well, I mean, I, I do spread myself too thinly. Uh, all the people that I've mentioned who give me good advice, the piece of advice they always give me is you're doing too much, just chill out and t take things a bit slower. For some reason, I seem incapable of listening to it, but um, 
I'm getting a little bit better. I've hired uh, a few more people to work for me who have taken away some of the more time-consuming jobs so I can focus on, on different things. I'm getting a little bit better at uh, partnerships, working with other people. Um, so yeah, it's, it, I mean, I'm for sure spread too thin. There's no question about it. I mean, are you uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing? Because, you know, you, you appear to be just a, a nice, normal guy. But if people didn't know you, they'd never know you've been this successful just by looking at you, no offence. Um, so would you say you're kind, ruthless? Um, how would you describe you as a businessman? I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say I was kind or ruthless. But I'm, I'm going to the, uh, the extremes now. I mean, you can be anything in between, obviously, so. Yeah, I think I would describe, I think I'd like to, would like to think that I'm very fair. Um, I always try to be fair. It's important to me that all the dealings I do are fair. It's important to me that people think I'm fair. Maybe I've even gone a little bit too far. Actually cost myself money by sort of being over fair in spots. Um, but yeah, I think it's most important to be, to be fair. Um, I think probably would make a little bit more money being a bit more ruthless. And I, I would hope that people think I'm kind. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to be unkind. And your business, you know, you've got business, things going on all around the world 24 seven. You can't be awake all the time. I mean, how, how, how do you switch off from it? I don't really switch off from it. Um, I should do. I mean, my fiance Laura, she goes mental at me because I, you know, I'm on the phone constantly. Uh, I mean, I, I play golf. I'm a keen golfer and that, that's good to switch off. But yeah, for the most part, I, I just don't. I should. Now, you, you've told me that you're, um, well, I know that you're well known and well respected in what is really a sort of underground world without making it sound criminal. But um, why are you blowing your cover doing this? I mean, I, I don't know if there's much of a cover to be, to be blown. I mean, I think, you know, I don't think I'm massively well-known, but people I work with, I think, respect me quite a bit, which is m what's important to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't, there wasn't any upside or downside. It just felt like a fun thing to do. Now, are you ready to delegate so that you can go and live on a beach somewhere? No. Or is that ever going to be on the horizon? I'm getting a little bit better. Um, I actually did a little business coaching last year, which, uh, which I, I went into with a negative mindset, but it was really good. And that was the one thing that uh, I, I took from that course. You have to delegate. The guy had a really good saying, which was, only spend your time doing things that only you can do. So... You know, there's lots of things where, that I would do a good job of it, but plenty of other people would do a good job of it as well. Those are tasks that I need to delegate. There's certain things, you know, without any sort of arrogance whatsoever, I feel like really benefit from me doing them. Stuff particularly that involves like relationship management or, you know, yeah, mostly just relationship management stuff really. So that's where I need to spend my time. So hopefully in a few years time, I will be much better at this. Um, all these things that have, that have come up in the last few questions are things that I need to be better at, for sure. And it's hard. I mean, you go, you went on the business course. Did the person taking the course know that you've you run a multi-million pound business? Uh, no, I mean, I, I no, I don't think so. But I mean, it was it was a very good course. Um, you know how to manage uh, how to manage yourself in business, how to. Uh, you know, manage people around you, opportunities. Uh, I, learned, I learned a lot from that, actually. I went in a little bit negative about it, but it was very, very good. It was worth every penny. I, I'm 
glad I did it. Now, coming to the end of this, um, we, we, do you consider yourself like a bookmaker, a pro punter, an entrepreneur, a mixture of the, the three? Or is it, you know, obviously you're still very young in your career. So what, what do you think you, you'll, you'll be sort of seen as at the end of it? I would like to be seen as, as an entrepreneur. Um, I kind of how I consider myself. I, I, I mean, I guess I've been a professional gambler for the majority of my life. I don't think I'm a particularly great professional gambler, but I think, I, I, I think I'm, 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 a, I'm an okay entrepreneur. I think I'm good at opp spotting opportunities and p putting the right things together is, is maybe my skills more than gambling. Okay, now I was interested to learn that you still play poker even though you've got the expectations of winning. I mean, yeah. is that, do you just pay for your pastime? Is that what it is now? Yeah, well, I love poker. I mean, I really do. Like, th this whole uh, life that I've ended up in has come from poker, really. You know, all my friends are poker players, um, pretty much guys that I met through poker. Most of my contacts have come directly or indirectly through poker. So the whole thing is very, uh, you know, the game is a special place, special place in my heart. I enjoy it. I don't play very often because I don't have the time, but I play five or six times a year and I don't, I say I don't expect to win. Like I, I want to win. I try to win. I don't think I necessarily am expected to lose a, an awful lot, if anything, but I, I'm not, you know, thinking I'll play here because the owl is this or this is a soft game or that's a good game. I mostly play when I can, uh, when I have the time. And when it sounds like it would be good, be good fun. All right, now we're going to we're going to close this interview, spinning it right right round to almost the beginning when you were a professional poker player. You used to write a blog, and people would be envious. You had thirty thousand regular readers. Have you got anything, any stories from that period that you want to conclude this interview with? Yeah, well, yeah, the blog was uh, was was a lot of fun. It was mostly just me rambling about shenanigans. You know, I was sort of like a young kid having adventures and I just spewed them down on paper because it was kind of cathartic for me and I think people people quite enjoyed reading it. Uh, the best the best blog, it got uh, over 200,000 views, unique hits. Um, it, was from, it was from a Vegas story and it might actually be my favorite ever Vegas memory and I know it's a, it's a favorite of all of my friends. Uh, the, the blog's title was called uh, The Tabs on Pab and the story is uh, we've been out drinking, uh, there's a big group of us, some of us for 20 hours, 30 hours. I think I'd been up for closing in on two days. Uh, this was kind of common practice back then. We were just a little bit off the rails. And we were bowling. I'm pretty sure we're at the Gold Coast bowling. And uh, we finished bowling. We've been playing some silly drinking game. And we come up with this game where we're gonna have, di we booked a table for in 45 minutes at the TGI Fridays in either the Gold Coast or the Golden Nugget, some sort of like fairly lowbrow casino. And the deal was, you have to go into the casino and find a date. Anyone that comes, anyone that is, you have to be, at the minute that the reservation is for, you have to be there with a date. And if you're not with a date, then you're picking up the whole bill. And there's, 14 of us or something. So this is likely to be like a 30-person meal. I mean, it is TJ Friday's Gold Coast, but it's still not going to be, not going to be cheap. Um, I was with uh, a good friend of mine, Chris Mormon. Uh, everyone sort of splintered off into 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 pairs to 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 um, find their dates. Me and Chris uh, managed to find uh, a nice lady from Pittsburgh called Phyllis. 
who I think was 65 or, 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 or older. And then, um, well, obviously that's one that we need a second, but luckily her mother, Dolly, was also there. So we first to show up with Phyllis and Dolly. Um, other friends all come with various different people, um, like a real mi mismatch. And one guy's missing, a friend of ours called Pab, Paul Fulton, who's a great, great friend of mine. Um, and then we're, we're drinking, Mor morale is sort of soaring at this point. And, you know, everyone's like, the dates are sort of like, oh, um, would it be okay if I get a, get, a, get a beer? And we're like, get a beer? Get five beers. And they're like, what? Like, the tab's on Pab, get, get five beers. And then all of a sudden we're making such a racket, all these uh, tables nearby are like, what the hell's going on? And we're like, do you want some beers? And they're like, oh, we couldn't. We're like, of course you can, the tab's on Pab. And then all of a sudden we're buying everyone in the restaurant like pictures of beer. Pav hasn't arrived yet. He comes back uh, on his own with, with no date. I mean, he's lost anyway because he's missed the time. He comes back on his own date. And then the entire restaurant starts chanting, tabs on Pav, tabs on Pav, tabs on Pav. And he <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a brilliant way to use. Pav still speak to you. Pab still speaks to me. We, live, we actually lived together after that. And um, yeah, he's, he's back up in Yorkshire, but yeah, he took it great. He told us afterwards that he, had, he didn't fancy himself to, for the date. So he played blackjack and won a couple of grand and just about covered the, the cost of the bill. Brilliant stuff. Well, everybody needs a sportsman in gambling, but they well done, Pab. He took um, it very well. Anyway, on that note, David Nicholson, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.